Hello once again. If you were here last week, you heard Genevieve explain our goals for Project Share. Uh, this is big for us as a church. These local ministries that we partner with are on the ground working year-round with people in need, and we get a chance to set them up for a big win with the people they serve by blessing them with some food at Thanksgiving. And so as it gets closer to day of, we'll talk about how to help out that day and how to invite neighbors to join your project share. But right now, for only two more weeks, we're in the fundraising phase. And so um, as you know, we've had a $25,000 very generous matching gift to get us started, and now it's up to us to match that and a little more so that we can secure the 1,440 baskets of Thanksgiving meals requested by our partners. Uh, so if you're like me, you're probably planning to give, but let's be honest, you're going to wait until we get up here in two weeks and say, today's the last day, at which time you'd be like, oh yeah, let me pledge to that. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but imagine if we as a congregation decided we're going to take care of this today, September 24th, let's just knock it out. Save ourselves some announcement time in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so if you're thinking about pledging, it's just super easy. You just put a number on uh, that card, uh, on any card. Just take a card and put a number on it, slip in the back with your name. We'll take it that way. The card you got last week online, our website, there's a bunch of different ways. Just tell us how much that you're planning to give, and let's hit that $62,000 goal together. Thanks for helping us out with that. Let's pray now. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, so uh, Dr. Strange. This version of Batman. Luke Skywalker. They've got a commonality in their hero origin stories. You know what it is? All three went to a far-off place where they accessed reality on a deeper plane such that they're able to attain a level of skill, a level of wisdom, you could call it, that they hadn't before. Incidentally, uh, the movie writers seem to like for the guru who teaches the hero to be some version of a Buddhist monk. If the Buddhist monk has green skin, even better. And this guru can take his protege from skilled, yeah, to a whole other plane of existence. And I wonder if that storyline is appealing to us and comes up in so many of these narratives because deep down we sense that even if we were renowned medical doctors or billionaires or accomplished pilots, there would still be a deeper reality somewhere out there that might just still escape our grasp. Call it the force, call it spirituality, call it what you want. We can sense that we're missing that. That's got to be part of what's behind the phenomenon of rich and famous celebrities in real life who keep taking these solitude trips to Tibet, darkness retreats in South America to try to access that higher plane. I wonder if you've ever been nagged by the thought, there's got to be more. Like, isn't there another plane of existence, another dimension of reality beyond what I've experienced with my five senses. In our scripture text today, the Apostle Paul calls the more that we're looking for, he calls it the hidden wisdom of God. Did you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? It should be page 1012 in the 
Bible in the chair back in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're walking through this letter called 1 Corinthians. It's written by the Apostle Paul about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. That's what it would look like on Google Maps today. Uh, this church is super impressive on the outside, super toxic on the inside, as we'll find out over the coming weeks. So to review what we've seen in the last few weeks, Paul started out the letter like, hey, I heard a report that you guys in the church have divided yourselves into factions and you're all bragging about how you're better than each other. Stop that. Be united. Agree to agree. Then last week we saw him shift his focus to how God's apparent foolishness is wiser than even the best of the world's wisdom. Like human wisdom, guys, can't get you where you need to go. It's not a sufficient guide for life. It's going to fail you. And we can't be sure, but as this letter was being read out loud for the first time in Corinth, it's easy to picture that listeners may be exhaling a little bit at the end of chapter 1. Like, Paul really called us out in those opening verses for our factions. Thank goodness he changed the topic now to wisdom. Wisdom's a lot easier to swallow because uh, we're pretty wise, right? We're sitting under teaching here in Corinth every week from master orators. We're advanced. We're, we like the deep stuff here in Corinth. But right then, to their surprise, Paul cuts the legs out from under their self-professed wisdom when he's basically like, hey, the wisdom that you guys excel in is worldly wisdom. Remember I just told you about the truth of the death of Jesus in a straightforward way. Even though the world perceives the cross as foolish, so why are you guys jockeying to be wise the way the world is wise? Right? So that's what we covered last week. But we kind of left off mid-argument, which is why I asked you last week to think of last week and this week together as one big two-part sermon. So after calling them last week to forget about worldly wisdom, this week he clarifies, well, I'm not anti-wisdom. Worldly wisdom, yes, is pretty worthless, but I'm proposing an alternative. And the alternative Paul proposes to worldly wisdom is as different from worldly wisdom as Luke Skywalker using the force is from Luke Skywalker using just his five senses. Right? It's a different kind of wisdom, a different plane of wisdom altogether. And it's centered at the cross. So let's look at how Paul describes the alternative to worldly wisdom. I'm going to read the whole passage straight through. Follow along with me uh, starting in chapter 2 verse 6. Paul says, we do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages, before our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him. 
He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Last four verses. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready, because you're still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? Okay, a lot of text there. So in contrast to last week's exploration of the inferiority of worldly wisdom, we're going to look at six observations from this text about the superiority of God's hidden wisdom. Uh, So we're just going to pepper right through them. First, God's hidden wisdom is old. God's hidden wisdom is old. Worldly wisdom says, hey, look what I've got. See, it's shiny and new. And we respond, wow, before I learned about this phone with eight camera lenses, I didn't even realize how grainy my seven lens pictures have been. So each new fad has us ping-ponging from this to that, getting our credit cards out each time something newer comes along, right? And churches know this. So some say, look, the people want what's shiny and new. We want to reach people, don't we? Let's give them what's shiny and new, like what they're looking for. Problem, when we churches try to be shiny and new, we usually end up actually only managing to rip off what was shiny and new about five to ten years ago. And the bigger problem is that by trying to offer the shiny and new, we neglect to offer the wisdom the church uniquely has to offer, which Paul notes here is an ancient wisdom. You see it here? It says, this is a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. Not that everybody always saw it all that time, like it was hidden after all, right? But it was there. And one reason to embrace God's wisdom is that it's an ancient wisdom compared to the always new wisdom of this world. It's been around before time began and it's still there. But you say, I don't know though. So it's old, great. The Model T is old. You don't see me driving a Model T. Well, God's hidden wisdom isn't just old. It also has been victorious. Secondly, God's hidden wisdom has been victorious. Underlying Paul's words here is that this is 20 years after the best of the world's wisdom had gone head-to-head with the best of the wisdom of God in a battle royale. It took place on a Passover weekend, 20 years before this letter was written outside Jerusalem. The rulers of this age assembled on one side. See it? They teamed up. It was the leaders of the finest religion that humans had ever created alongside the leaders of the finest government our world had ever thought up up to that point. Arm in arm, Jewish rulers and Roman rulers working together to put Jesus in the grave. They didn't know the wisdom of God or else they wouldn't have been fighting against it. But because they didn't know it, they decided to go toe-to-toe against him. The pinnacle of God's wisdom against the pinnacle representatives of human, political, and religious wisdom. By Friday night of that week, the contest had been decided. The rulers of this age had done what they came to do. They had gotten the best of the one God had sent. 
God's plan seemed to have been thwarted. By all appearances, his wisdom had finally met its match. Oh, but then Sunday came. You heard me? Sunday came. Amen? And Sunday changed everything. The outcome was reversed. God raised up Jesus from the tomb, defeating death and vindicating his wisdom. The rulers of this world had done their worst, but it hadn't been enough to even slow down God's plan. Just the opposite. The rulers found out, to their great dismay, that they had been unwittingly playing a part in carrying out the wisdom of God's master plan all along without even realizing it. If they had realized what they'd been doing, there's no way they would have done it, our text says. Not because they had some soft spot for God's wisdom, but because they would have realized that to oppose God's wisdom was to seal their own fates. And I need to be reminded of that from time to time, don't you? Because if God's wisdom has been victorious, I don't need to walk around with my head hung sheepishly, like all I have to offer the world is the quaint religious traditions of my grandparents. No, no. We and our honored grandparents in the faith, are products of the wisdom of God that has gone toe-to-toe with the absolute best of human wisdom and won decisive victory. We belong to a power religion that is still operating in that victorious power today. Amen? God's hidden wisdom has been victorious. Third, God's hidden wisdom will endure as such. Check it out. The rulers of this age are coming to nothing, according to Paul. And Paul is proven right, isn't he? The Jewish rulers that he's thinking of here tragically saw their temple destroyed and their way of life overthrown just decades after this. The Roman Empire that he's speaking of here in all its glory toppled and came to nothing, in part because the upside-down Christian narrative had won the hearts of the people and showed the Roman narrative to be uncompelling. Give it enough time and every movement that seems like they've got it figured out, ends up getting toppled. Yet implied here is that our faith isn't coming to nothing. We've got a future ahead of us. And it's a future that lands us squarely on the right side of history when it all is said and done. Human wisdom can't say that. Human wisdom once said that drinking mercury could cure diseases. Human wisdom uh, once said that different regions of your tongue are specialized for different kinds of tastes. By the way, just this week I found out that that was not true. My whole life I've thought that. That people with certain facial structures were more prone to criminal behavior. All that wisdom, so to speak, came to nothing. By contrast, God's wisdom is unchanging. Generation to generation without embarrassment. So you say, hey, hey, I do want that, but I'm stuck, you say. Right? Like, even the text that you're pointing us to, Pastor, is saying that this, this is it's hidden wisdom, right? So how am I going to give up what I can see and touch and experience for something elusive and mysterious that I may not ever even find? Good news. God's hidden wisdom has been revealed, number four. God's hidden wisdom has been revealed. Yes, it is a mystery, but not the sort of mystery we can never solve. Not even a mystery that we're called on to solve. More like a secret that's been revealed. We've been let in on what was previously hidden. Check out how Paul presents this. We just 
saw this quote from Isaiah that we've heard read at funerals before here in verse 9, right? He's quoting Isaiah here. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. But Paul doesn't seem to understand this quote from Isaiah the way we often present it at funerals. Here's what I mean. He doesn't present this, if you look at the flow of the argument here, as though Isaiah is saying, hey guys, one day in the future... When we're in heaven, then we will see what no eye has seen. Then in heaven we'll hear what no ear has heard. Then in heaven we'll imagine what no heart has conceived. That's not what he's saying. When does Paul say that we get to see what no eye has seen? When does Paul say we get to hear what no ear has heard and conceive what no human heart has conceived? Look at the text. When, do, when does he say? See it? Verse 10? When? Now. Right? Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. The things nobody's seen, the things nobody's heard, the things nobody's ever conceived before. And that's not to say that God's wisdom is obvious. In our natural state, it is actually hidden from us, such that we're unable to see. But Paul says, what has been, unhid- what has been hidden in years past, we're now unwrapping the package and showing you what's inside. I like how one pastor summarizes it. The reassurance for Paul is not that our future cannot be imagined, but that it can God hasn't left us in the dark. We're told what our future holds. That's the thing. Give you and me a million lifetimes. We could never have pieced this together on our own and figured it out ourselves, right? We had no hope of figuring it out unless the keeper of this wisdom came and said, hey, come here, let me show you something, and took off the cover that was hiding it so that we could see it plainly, right? It's like Kevin DeYoung says, the only being knowledgeable enough wise enough and skillful enough to reveal God to us is God himself. Isn't it good news then that God wants us to know about him? Thank God that he pulled back the curtain and didn't leave us in the dark forever regarding his plan. Now our search is no longer a quest for something hidden. It's not hidden anymore. But rather it's a quest to go deeper into something that's already been revealed. So question. Do you ever consider that you might be searching for something that's already been revealed to you? Like you're sitting in the coffee shop taking wild guesses at the password for the Wi-Fi network while it was actually written on the table right in front of you? Anybody been there before? But isn't that what we're prone to do when it comes to our search for wisdom, our search for meaning in life, right? God's like, hey, you're searching and searching, but I wrote to you right here with the password. You're booking flights to Tibet, but why don't you consider what I've already laid out plainly for you, right? I knew you'd never arrive at this conclusion on your own, so I took initiative to tell you in 66 books what it's all about. It's all about that I sent my son to die in your place so you could be forgiven of your sins and be in my family forever. This is the key that unlocks it all. So now, for us, God's hidden wisdom is accessible through God's Spirit. It hasn't just been revealed. It's accessible to us here and now through God's Spirit. See the argument starting in verse 10? Basically, in these verses here, Paul's saying, hey, we humans couldn't figure out God's wisdom, so we needed somebody who knows God to then come down to us and tell us God's wisdom. Good news, God's Spirit knows God, just like your Spirit knows you. God's Spirit knows God inside and out. So when God's Spirit speaks, we know we're getting the real deal. No need to jockey with the philosophers or try to take baby steps toward the truth. We receive from the Spirit what God says, and we just accept it as is. 
Sounds easy enough. But you and I know it's not that easy, is it? Like an experience. Like, like great. Like, I can access God's wisdom through the Spirit. Awesome. But am I the only one or has anyone else ever asked in frustration, how do I actually do that? Like, do I go out in the forest preserve and listen to the wind in the trees to see if I can hear what God's Spirit is saying to me? Do I ask the people around me what they think and trust that God's Spirit will speak to me through them? Do I look inside my own heart and try to tune in to God's Spirit that's living inside of me? Maybe. But then what happens when I hear my heart telling me something different than all my friends are telling me? And how do I know that when I was looking up at the stars, those flutters in my stomach were God's Spirit speaking to me, not just the last burrito from earlier in the evening? Anybody else wrestle with this? Like, like I want to be a spiritual person, but I don't know how. If you and I were sitting down talking about this, uh, here's what I might ask you. Who do you consider, who do you know that you consider to be a spiritual person? Describe them to me. You might say, well, oh, well, their hands are often raised in worship. They weep sometimes when they pray. They always seem to have something that they've been hearing from God recently. Uh, they go on solitude retreats. They spontaneously do unexpected stuff just because they sense the Spirit leading them. Like, I'm jealous that they're obviously so spiritual and I'm not. Question. Is hand-raising and spontaneity and emotional expression what it means to be spiritual? Jonathan Edwards has an answer to this question. Background. He's at the epicenter of what's called in history the First Great Awakening. Right? And he described in writing these miraculous moves of God's Spirit that happened all over America, largely in New England, from firsthand experience. He saw God do amazing, miraculous, book of Acts type stuff. Right? And so if you ever read about it, God's doing some wild stuff during this time. And Edwards wasn't negative about any of the hand-raising or expressive practices we named a moment ago. To Edwards demonstrative connection to, be, to God can be good. He called for an increase in religious affections, not just head knowledge. Certainly nothing wrong with those apparent signs themselves. He praised God for it all, but he actually calls those things non-signs because in his extensive experience, when it comes to discerning whether someone's truly operating in the spirit or not, those things, those outward visible things, don't tell us anything one way or the other about whether someone's truly spiritual. Edward saw there are too many people who have those outward signs who eventually demonstrate that there was something other than God's spirit driving their imitation spirituality, right? We've seen the hucksters on TV, right? The, the preachers who get up and are doing all these showy things right, in the spirit, and then you find out afterwards that they just had people planted in the crowd and it was all fake, right? How does this passage define what it means to be spiritual? Take a look with me. 1 Corinthians 2. How does 1 Corinthians 2 define what it means to be spiritual? If we can't tell somebody spiritual by whether they're weeping or not, or whether they do this or that, how can we tell if we're spiritual? If you see here, the spiritual person is contrasted with the person who doesn't have the spirit. Spiritual people, on the other hand, the person without the spirit. In other words, it's not like some of those who embrace the message of the cross 
reach this higher level of being spiritual, while the rest of us who embrace the message of the cross stay down here as non-spiritual Christians. No, those who embrace the message are by definition spiritual, according to Paul, because they have God's spirit. Those who don't embrace the message, by definition, aren't spiritual, according to Paul. There's the spiritual person, the person without the spirit. So whatever spiritual expressions may or may not be manifested in one's life, whatever show of gifts or powers, however skilled one is at discerning the spirit's still small voice, to be spiritual is simply to accept the revealed objective wisdom of what God has done in Christ at the cross in this passage. Now, I know what some must be thinking because I've thought it too, okay? You say, Tim, when you start to talk about spirituality as something that you either have or don't have based on some objective criteria, you're minimizing the value of my personal spiritual experience. Like God's spirit, Tim, speaks to me in intimate ways apart from scripture. Why are you downplaying that? And listen, I'm not trying to say that God's spirit can't or doesn't speak to you. I'm not attempting to discredit anyone's experience. I'm really not. I do believe I've had many times in which I believe I've heard from the spirit in helpful ways. That said, there's another reality that I wrestle with too personally now. <clears throat> Namely, I've had along, over the years walking with God some egregious missteps in my own life in thinking I was hearing the voice of the Spirit when it wasn't the Spirit's voice. And over the years, I've had too many friends then and counseled too many people who have been disappointed by their misreading of subjective impressions. Like, I thought for sure that God told me X, right? What does this mean about my relationship with him that I was mishearing him all this time? So that's one consideration that makes me want to pump the brakes on how much weight we put on, I sensed the Spirit telling me X, Y, Z. But much more importantly than that experiential caution flag, I'm trying to pay attention to what this text says. Scan back over this passage with me. Where do we see any encouragement to seek out internal subjective impressions of God's Spirit? I can't find it here. For that matter, where does Paul talk about being spiritual as though it's something inward? Verse 12 makes it sound like true spirituality comes from outside of us. There's a spirit outside of us who comes down from God, and if we want to be spiritual people, we get that spirituality from him. We look to him, not look within if we want to be spiritual. As I read on in this letter, I see Paul taking great pains, especially in chapters 14 and 15, to make sure the Corinthians understand, hey guys, whatever inward sense from the Spirit that you think you're getting, there's an objective truth that overrides and supersedes your experiential spirituality. And where do we get that objective truth? Check it out. I never realized this before this week. Who's the we here in this passage? The us. Is it Paul saying, me and all of you Corinthians, all of us together? us? Take a look. What do you think? No, he's contrasting him and his companions. That's the we, the us, versus the you. When he uses you, he's talking about the Corinthian church throughout here and then into chapter three. He's not saying, in other words, hey, we all speak spiritually, my companions and all you guys in Corinth, right? 
And the point he's making is that unlike the Corinthians, you, who are operating in the foolish, immature, fleshly mode of the world around them, from his perspective, his team, we, are speaking spiritually. Right? And why does that matter? Because while, yes, the Spirit lives inside of all Christians, and yes, all Christians have access to that same Spirit, it turns out the clearest access that we have to God's Holy Spirit is through the words that the Spirit spoke through the apostles and prophets, like Paul, who wrote it down in Scripture for us. Jesus promised this would happen after he left. The night before he died, he told his disciples, hey, you know, there's things that I'm not telling you yet. It's going to be told to you later on by the, through the apostles, by the Holy Spirit, right? And they're going to write it down. And in short, if we want to know what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, the most reliable way to access the Spirit's revelation is here in Scripture. Now, open a can of worms here, right? So, I want to take another couple of minutes to make sure I've been clear, okay? So to oversimplify for the sake of understanding, we can picture Christian individuals and Christian churches along this, a spectrum like this, okay? Just for the sake of discussion, we can uh, call it uh, truth-oriented Christians and truth-oriented churches over here to give it a label. Um, somebody over here might say, God doesn't speak anymore. He's already said all he's going to say in the Bible. I don't seek mystical experiences with God, right? I just read his word. I don't expect any supernatural things to happen in church on Sunday. Let's not open ourselves up to the risk of any disorderly situations happening during church, right? So that'd be the truth-oriented side. Over here on this other side is uh, spirit-oriented, we might say, right, to give it a label. Somebody over here might say, God, speak to me now. I want intimacy with you. I want to breathe you in and hear your voice. Right? I know you can move in power even now, God. Even supernaturally, in our midst, do today the kinds of miraculous things that only you can do. See, we, we could say that this side leans objective, rational. This side leans more subjective, more experiential. And people in churches fall on all different spots on that spectrum, right? And of course the solution is that both of these are important, spirit and truth, and we need to pull from both ends. But there may not be a symmetry between these two. Like, they may not be equally important. So uh, there may be an ordering to it. So each Christian, each church have to discern on which of these ends we may be missing out on at any given time uh, by underemphasis or overemphasis. See what I'm saying? So, many of you who have been around the last seven years know that I've given us here at North Sub some gentle nudges in this direction. Like, let's move a little bit to the right here on this scale um, along the way since becoming senior pastor, right? It, that's because if we miss here at North Sub, I think, this is my read, is that we're missing maybe over a little too far over here. Not that we want to neglect truth at all, but maybe we're missing out on some of this that we could benefit from. We need to be stretched in our comfort zone in this direction. Right? And to those in our congregation, even here today, who have been pushing us in this direction, giving us gentle nudges, being patient with us and saying, hey guys, come on over here a little bit. It's pretty nice over here. Um, I hope you've heard us saying to you as you pushed us, yes, you belong here and we need what you, what you bring. That said, our text today, this morning, I think calls us and reminds us 
that we've got to grapple honestly with some things on the other side of this too. After all, 1 Corinthians is our chance to hear how Paul writes to his church that's the furthest in this direction. Out of all the churches Paul writes to, the Corinth, Corinth is the furthest over here. Okay. They're all about the spontaneity, all about the gifts, all about the subjective experience of the Spirit. So the furthest this way among us, those of us who would maybe gravitate this direction, might expect Paul to say to the Corinthians, yes, you Corinthians get it, unlike my other churches. right? You guys are brave enough to acknowledge that a mystical, personal experience with the Spirit is what we need. You guys are doing the important work of listening to the Spirit's still, small voice. Well done. Instead, what's Paul's tone about the Corinthian spirituality and charismatic expressions in this letter? There's no way around it. It skews negative, right? So those of us who want to take steps over this way, like me, I want us to. I want to personally. Some of our favorite chapters of this letter are chapters 12 and 14, chapters about the Spirit. I personally can't wait till we get there in this series, right? Because that's what churches in the 21st century America, what we need, right? To wake up to the vibrancy of life in the Spirit. Hear me out, though. Today's passage, 1 Corinthians 2, has more mentions of the Spirit than chapter 12 does. It has twice as many mentions of the Spirit than chapter 14 does. The two spirit chapters in this book. Why? Because right at the beginning of this letter, Paul is getting out in front of it to try to correct the Corinthians' understanding of who the spirit is and what the spirit does. To the Corinthians, the spirit is chapters 12 and 14. Right? Gifts and signs and miracles and personal connection. To Paul, more primary are other functions of the spirit, revealing God to us. Helping us understand what God has freely given to us. Teaching us, as you can see in these verses here. And not in some kind of ultra-mystical way that can make us think, well, I'm better than those who don't get it. I like how Andrew Wilson summarizes these verses. And Andrew Wilson's pretty charismatic too. But he says, the Spirit doesn't seek to reveal obscure practices and secret codes, let alone things that would make some Christians feel superior to others, as was happening in first century Corinth and sadly still happens in churches today. He seeks to reveal whatever God has freely given for us to know. That's the language of verse 12. And he reveals it to anyone who believes. So why is Paul using chapter 2 to foreground the teaching and revealing work that the Spirit does for all believers instead of launching right into the chapter 12 gifts and abilities the Spirit grants to particular individuals? We've got to remember the church Paul's writing to. Right? They, in Corinth, are condescendingly looking across the sanctuary at each other like this. Hey, we're better than those guys over there. We're wiser than those. We're more spiritual than those guys. Factions have been elevating themselves over others in the church with this air of superiority. And in light of that, Paul's implying with all this spirit talk in chapter 2, hey, if your so-called spirituality makes you feel like you're elevated over others, that's not spirituality. Spiritual here is a synonym for Christian. The contrast to a spiritual person is a person without the Spirit. All of us Christians have the Spirit, so we're all spiritual. That puts us on level ground. The hidden wisdom of God hasn't been reserved for a select few spiritual people. We all, every Christian has access to it by the same Spirit, which we all have. Quit acting like you're better than others, Paul says. So it's probably a shock then to the Corinthians that all this talk about wisdom and spirituality has been Paul priming the pump to circle back to this topic of division, 
that he started with in chapter 1. He now says, hey, your factionalism is a sure sign that despite your claims to be wise and mature, you're actually being immature, foolish, like mere humans. Now, I want to take a minute here to just address the person who's here this morning, or who ends up watching this after the fact online, who's not a believer in Jesus. Because, like, if I were in your shoes, I might have two objections to this text, two big ones. First, I might object to Paul's claim that the term spiritual is the exclusive property of the family of those who have God's spirit through belief in the cross of Christ. Like, the spiritual just as Christians. I would have a problem with this. Maybe you too. You say, I'm spiritual. Right? I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Right? And when you say that, you mean that even though you're not interested in organized religion, maybe, you think there's more to existence than just atoms and molecules. In that sense, you consider yourself to be spiritual. But as Andrew Wilson points out, according to this scripture and others, you might be more religious and less spiritual than you think. Religious, not spiritual, might actually be the better label, and here's why. Because we're all worshiping every day. Even if we just worship ourselves, we all sing songs that praise somebody, even just ourselves. We all give money to something, even if just to our own comfort. We all participate in rituals, even if just at Soldier Field. We all make efforts to atone for our wrongs, right? We're religious people. But on the spiritual side, how do I claim to be spiritual if I don't have access to any spirit outside of me? In other words, imagine how spiritual you'll be one day once you tap into the actual spirit of God instead of just looking inward for your spirituality. My second objection as a non-Christian uh, to this text might be this, that this claim of that, that, that a higher form of wisdom is somehow available only to those who have God's spirit. How condescending. How condescending is that? You're like, hey, I've met Christians. There's some ignorant, unwise Christians out there. Meanwhile, I've seen a lot as a non-Christian. I've read a lot. I've gained a lot of understanding. I'm wiser than at least some Christians. And listen, you, you probably have gained some understanding that many of us Christians don't have. But even so, you haven't heard or seen or imagined what the love of God has prepared for those who love him. And oh man, while we may have a lot to learn from you about all sorts of things. We would love to introduce you to that love of God. That's why there's this language here that seems a little condescending at first. Elitist. Paul's writing to Christians in a sophisticated urban center who might be worried they're going to be called closed-minded or ignorant. And so he's like, no, no, no. We Christians aren't less able to see than the world is able to see because of our narrow lens. We're actually more able to see because of our dual lens. Like once we become Christians, we can still see the world from the old perspective that we had because it was our perspective just yesterday. But we can also now see it from our new perspective, the new lens. And that enables us to evaluate everything. It makes it not so bothersome if others give us a negative evaluation. Right? Y'all remember before we gave our lives to Christ? Do you remember those days? Our attempts to understand spiritual matters were like a blind person trying to understand someone's description of a sunset, right? People would ask about spiritual matters, talk about spiritual matters. We'd be like, I sort of understand some of what you're saying, but it just the, the dots weren't connecting. 
But then when God's spirit took up residence in us, it now clicked for the first time and our view of everything else became colored by it. It's like C.S. Lewis said, right? I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. If you haven't yet had that experience of the light flooding onto the canvas by which you've been seeing this life, we so hope that you'll embrace the foolish gospel and be given eyes to see all things. Finally, briefly, some of God's hidden wisdom is best reserved for the mature. Some of God's hidden wisdom is best reserved for the mature. This is where the milk and solid food metaphor comes in. I think this one's often misunderstood. I hear Christians all the time use this pridefully. Contrasting themselves, who are solid food kind of people, with so-called baby Christians, who still need milk, bless their hearts. And Hebrews talks about feeding on milk, so maybe there's some of that going on there. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, we see a different emphasis from Paul. Paul actively withholds solid food from the church at Corinth. Solid food meaning like deep teaching. Not because they're not interested in it. It's not like he tried to teach them some deep stuff like, hey, the solid food's too heavy for us, man. Give us milk. No, these people would 100% say, hey, we're the meat kind of people. Don't bore us with milk. But Paul says that makes you exactly the kind of people who need milk. Exactly the kind of people have no business getting solid food. See it? Why they're not ready? It's because they're still worldly, right? As evidenced by their propensity for the I'm better than you sort of division. So folks here who disciple or mentor younger believers, if you're investing in a prideful Christian who thinks he or she is above the baby Christians in his or her life who need milk, the last thing you should give that person is a whole heaping spoonful of solid food. They'll take the solid food and use it to puff themselves up even further. The final state will be worse than before you fed them. No, those are the people who need milk, according to Paul. You can't have the solid food yet because you're too self-important. Humble yourselves. Get rid of your envy and strife and infighting with other Christians that you think you're better than. Then I've got some solid food that I'm happy to give you, Paul says. We love the new believers in our life. Who, were, who are what we once were, right? Fired up, devouring sermons and books on the faith, learning a ton, starting to maybe get a little zealously prideful and comparing themselves with other Christians that they think don't take the faith seriously enough. You know people like that? You've been people like that? I've been that person. Probably still am to some degree. The worst thing we can do for someone in that situation is just pump them full of advanced teaching. You're just going to feed their pride. Better to pause and go back to milk for a season. The goal in all this isn't to cultivate a superior mind, it's to cultivate the mind of Christ. So, God's hidden wisdom. Let's look at the ground we covered today. God's hidden wisdom, it's old. God's hidden wisdom has been victorious. God's hidden wisdom will endure. God's hidden wisdom has been revealed. God's hidden wisdom is accessible through God's spirit. And some of God's hidden wisdom is best reserved for the mature. Last week we said, let's not build our church on worldly wisdom. It's not going to hold. This week we've seen the alternative that Paul has in mind, the hidden wisdom of God. And so, friend, just wanna, I want you to hear one more time this morning that you're not going to find the secret that unlocks what you're looking for in life on a darkness retreat or with Tibetan monks or at a crypto investors conference 
the hidden wisdom that we're all hardwired to yearn for has been brought out into plain sight by God's Spirit, primarily as he has revealed it through the apostles and prophets in Scripture. It will never conflict with that. Christ crucified, that's the center point of it. It'll all keep leading back to that if it's truly God's Spirit. That cross is meant to be the shape of our lives. It's meant to be the shape of our families. It's meant to be the shape of our jobs. It's meant to form the shape of our communities, of our relationships, dying so that we might live. Being willing to suffer so that we might experience glory. All because Jesus went through it once and for all. Dying in our place to bring us back to God. Nobody could have ever dreamed up a story like that. The hero dying for the villains. But that's the upside down wisdom of God. As we close our time of reflection in this text, I want to do so by uh, stepping back here so we can pray a prayer of confession and then assurance of pardon uh, based on what we've seen in this passage. Our Father, we confess that in our blindness to your great wisdom, grace, and power, we have not lived in the ways that you have called us to live. Forgive us for our faithlessness as we've chased what's new and fashionable instead of holding to your ancient wisdom. Forgive us for our foolishness as we've sought guidance from our own understanding instead of your word and will. Forgive us for our powerlessness as we've lived as though the gospel of Jesus is tame. Forgive us for our stubbornness as we've looked to possessions, relationships, and philosophies for the secret to life. Forgive us for our self-centeredness as we used even our knowledge of you to exalt ourselves over others. Open our eyes and hearts that we may experience fullness of your great wisdom, grace, and power in Christ Jesus.